are answers what I want? What are the questions even? Stripes, circles. A forest mind is swirling through truth and disbelief. To discuss this and more, I have with me American composer, artist, and architect Christopher Jenny, who's known for realizing his dreams of inextricably uniting architecture and music. And thus he has been weaving sounds through the warp and weft of time. I'm honored that he has been a friend, a guide, and a teacher for me. And I would like to share what he has shared with me. A typical COVID-19 message from a trustworthy health resource would clearly define how we must conduct ourselves during these rather precarious times. We've been told time and again, besides social distancing and keeping meetings virtual like we're doing right now, we cannot hug or shake hands, avoid crowds, and definitely not touch surfaces. On the other hand, touch, unlike vision, requires that we reach out and explore the world with our sensory surfaces. While visual features are bound Whenever we look at the world in touch, we must reach out and investigate with our bodies and gestures. Christopher, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> and uh, besides the world map of projects that you have, whether they be urban instruments or music or architecture or design, touch has been such a huge part of your artistic emotion. You have so, so many touch-based projects, but my favorite is aptly titled Reach. And I shall read out the description for the listeners. Since 1995, Reach has engaged New York City subway riders to connect with the urban environment in an unusual and musical way. As waiting pedestrians reach up and wave their hands in front of one of the eight eyes, a beam of light is interrupted. This activates reach, which emits a range of sounds from melodic instruments, marimba flute, to name a few, to, envi to environmental sound images, Everglades rainforest. The piece is installed on both the uptown and downtown platforms of the subway station in New York City. Riders often play reach with other passengers across the tracks. Christopher, tell us how you conceived of reach and what does this installation mean to you in the present day context? This seems such a symbolic installation where we cannot truly reach or become one with the sounds or sensations of the environment. Well, thanks for having me, Ivana. You know, I'm a great fan of yours, and I love talking with you about art and uh, certainly about interactive environments. Uh, I think also Reach is one of my favorites. Um, I developed it while I was an artist in residence at MIT in the 90s, in the early 90s, and uh, my training as an architect and a jazz musician, it was, you know, always this idea of how to put music and interactivity really in the public environment. 
you know, I was always of the philosophy that uh, architecture is more than building buildings and art is something that should happen on your way to work. So uh, certainly the first piece that I did my thesis at MIT, which was called Soundstair, which was built to transform existing stairways into musical and environmental sonic uh, staircases. I did it uh, in on the Spanish Steps in Rome. I did it in Washington, the National Gallery. Uh, I, you know, I toured it quite a bit, but I did that probably for two years. When I came back to MIT, I wanted to think about other ways to interact with the environment using the same kind of elements, photoelectric sensors, uh, interface to computer and sound system, you know, what we call today physical computing, ways that we can uh, uh, have technology interact with the physical environment. Uh, so one of the ideas that came to mind was that area, that space right over your head, uh, that not a lot of people do things with, um, you know, in terms of artistic or even architectural design. So that was really my uh, thought about reach, that I wanted to do something that was sort of about six or seven feet off the ground where people would reach up as they're walking down a hall or uh, uh, in any number of architectural spaces and sort of wave their hand, which, you know, is also a very welcoming gesture that we don't see a lot of in public environments. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was really uh, at MIT, there was a hallway uh, at the Center for Advanced Visual Studies where I first literally took all the elements of the sound stair piece, the photo cells, and I built racks that were up on either side of this six foot wide hallway. So now you basically, by reaching your hand up, you're breaking a beam of light. Uh, and that was triggering the audio score, which was a combination of melodic instruments and, and acoustic uh, instruments. So from there, sort of developing the proof of concept, I um, then had an invitation to do it in Paris, in the Paris Metro, actually. Uh, you know, they have quite a, a extensive, I think they call it, um, do they call it public activation mm -hmm. uh, or activation in public space? But, you know, they've had tennis matches. They've had the circus. They've had lots of things in the Paris Metro. Wow. Um, and, and so it wasn't too difficult for me to sort of sell the idea to them that I would like to come and um, do this piece in the Metro. And I was over uh, in Germany having a, an exhibition of my work. So, you know, at the end of that installation, I drove uh, to Paris and set it up for a week in the St. Augustin Metro. And, um, you know, I could see that, uh, uh, how it worked and also the nice thing about that is like the metro that metro is a one big vaulted space you know like in the mm -hmm. dc washington dc metro you see you look across the tracks you see people standing on the other side of the tracks so it was also this sort of voyeuristic condition where you know you're looking at people across the tracks but you you don't try to communicate with them so the idea was, okay, let's have the photo cells go all the way across the tracks and people on either side could play the instrument 
with one another while they're waiting for the subway train. And uh, so that, that worked well in terms of sort of not only animating the space, but also uh, creating this communication uh, that is sort of there all the time, people looking across the tracks. And uh, after that, uh, I think the MIT, the MTA, the New York MTA, got in touch with me and uh, they knew about my other work, my sound stair work, and they were doing a temporary arts uh, for construction sites in the subway. And um, I said, well, ironically, you know, I have a piece that I built and seems to have worked in other subways. So I did it, uh, I think it was 1995. We installed it there as a one-year temporary installation in the New York MTA, and it's, it's been there ever since. So it's a long-standing temporary artwork. Yes, and while you were speaking, my heart was constricting, and I'll be honest. Like, it's so profound, so relevant, not just for New Yorkers or that specific installation. Aren't we all try to reach an understanding, the meaning of touch and reaching out? It's so, so profound. You know, and I'm, <laughs> I've just, like, I haven't actually seen the installation, been to New York so many times, and uh -huh. but just online seeing the videos and understanding what it means for New Yorkers, for humanity in general, you know, I wish there was the installation everywhere and people would understand the meaning and the profound significance of this its installation, which is very prophetic. Well, you make a very good point. And actually, you know, as far back as 1982, the author John Nesbitt, he wrote a book, Mega Trends. And in there was when he first talked about the concept of high tech, high touch. And then he actually wrote a book, I think about 10 years later, called High Tech, High Touch, just on that specific idea. And really the fundamental concept was that the more we get involved with not touching through all this high technology and virtual environments, there seems to be a, a human condition where we want to touch. So that as technological uh, communications evolved, so did things like yoga classes and mm -hmm. meditation. I mean, people have, whether it's intuitive or, or conscious, they have an understanding that touch puts them in, keeps them in contact, in contact with the real world. And that's an important aspect that we don't get with technology. Yeah. I, what was the name of the author? I'm going to write it down. John Naisbitt, N-A-I-S-B-I-T-T. -T. Okay. Yeah, I, I have to look this book up. That's, that's yeah. a lot of information. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting. The book is, the High Tech, High Tech, High Touch book is really about that. The whole book is about that concept. I mean, to know that, that phrase and think about it, you 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 get a good understanding of what the book is about. It talks a lot about examples of it and things of this nature. It's not so much more revealing or wasn't so much more revealing to me, except for the profound concept in that mm -hmm. phrase. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so relevant. And I don't know how long, but this is going to stay relevant for a long, long time and even for oh, generations. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, it's gonna 
it, you know, the more we, the more we go away from touch, the more our natural human tendencies are going to bring it back to us. So I, I feel that we have to learn to create things that have both these elements. Yeah, so much to think about. Okay, yeah. so my next question is, um, I'm mentally tracking physical changes um, in the way we are thinking right now or the way we are responding or reacting to each other without the element of touch, as you said, or even remembering the elements of touch because uh-huh. we have uh-huh. so much technology around us and we rely on these devices, like right now I'm holding my phone and sitting for dear life, or uh-huh. technologies to do the remembering for us. So, for instance, I heard the professor of media arts and sciences at the media lab, Patty Mays, once uh-huh. say that we are cyborgs ever since the smartphones were introduced, and that smartphones are becoming like second memory or second cognition. I, I think that's what it's coming to, or it's at least temporarily... Um, What's, what it's coming to, the entire idea of exploring the spatial nature of objects by walking around them, investigating their forms, planes, lines, shapes of sounds. Is this all becoming more of an extension of our virtual existence? Or, or do you think this has a hidden meaning and that dispels a better understanding of the arts in the years to follow? Well... Um, I'm going to try to say this as politely as I can. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with MIT. Oh, God. Okay. You know, I, mean, I did my graduate work there. I was a research artist there for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I tend to think that we're not cyborgs. Mm-hmm. I tend to think that... Um, technological developments in communication are have are actually making us less humane um, and so I would push against that concept of being a cyborg and I think you know I think I, what was the quote I had oh well you know in Pythagoras the famous fourth century philosopher mm-hmm. you know said once that everything is numbers mm-hmm. but you know my dog and his nose don't think about it that way. So <laughs> I think the point is, you know, if you want to think of the world as all numbers, mm-hmm. you can. But in point of fact, I think uh, that as human beings with five or maybe six senses, I think mm-hmm. it's important to use and develop them all. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that uh, I think it's important for us to keep all our senses in balance and use them all. And certainly the touch aspect uh, being a big part of my work uh, is an effort to sort of support that concept. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is very, very true. Um, I'm going to, from there, I'm going to take it to the other aspect of touch that you always, like I, I, I witnessed to one of the concerts that was amazing. Um, oh. British physician John Napier, who specialized in hands, wrote in his illustrated work titled Hands, the hand at rest is beautiful in its tranquility, but it is infinitely more appealing in the flow of action. 
Um, I cannot but return to one of my most favorite projects of yours, Heartbeat, which I just keep reading, understanding, and each time I come up with a different idea, you know, inspiration from it. Um, I shall quote a review create, uh, created in 1983. Heartbeat explores the visceral rhythm of, how do you say her name, Rudner? Yeah, Rudner. Sarah Rudner. She was the principal dancer with Twyla Tharp. Okay, so I'm going to read the quote again. Created in 1983, Heartbeats explores the visceral rhythm of Rudner's heart via an amplification device that musician and multimedia artist Jenny attached to the dancer's chest and amplified. For her solo, Rudner follows her pulse with slow, deep amplified breaths and sustained arm movements. Quickly, her heart accelerates. Soon, her arms are slicing through space, her heart pounding as Jenny reads jargon-filled medical texts, describing cardiac transformation and such. Soon, Rudner's movement takes on an East Indian sensibility, articulated fingers, quick stepping flat feet, and paddle turns. Brotha Roy accompanies following her lead on the tabla and Indian drum. Rudner ends where she began with a finger to her pulse points and a breath. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another uh, review from a recent performance in Baton Rouge. After reaching a furious crescendo and fading away, only the sound of the dancer's beating heart was heard until she walked to the modified heart monitor and turned it off. The performance ended in a heavy, poignant silence, a palpable reminder that the most important music of all is the rhythm of life itself, hidden deep within us. Ooh, that's a lot. Once yeah. again, gestures touch the flow of blood, sounds, rhythms, all of this constructed dynamic space which is psychotherapeutic and extremely healing, even as we talk about it. Uh, please tell us more about Heartbeat and its relevance in what the world is going through at this juncture. Right. Uh, uh, I just, you know, when you read those things and then I, I relive them. Yeah, I could feel that. <laughs> and I, I remember them. And the performance in Baton Rouge was at the end of January of this year. So, I mean, oh, the, 2020. Yes, the work with How Sarah. I, I began in 1983. Mm -hmm. uh, I started on Sarah then, but uh, I've done it in many uh, different iterations, many different ways. And this most recent one, uh, that last review you you read, was for a performance that was two months ago. So. It's, um, it is the most poignant work for me mm. as well. And I think somebody asked me once if I was ever to be marooned on an island with only one of my works, uh, which would it be? And I, I said, without hesitation, it would be yeah. heartbeat because uh, it's never the same twice. Mm. 
it's always, as a jazz musician, it's always an exploration. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I think more importantly, it's, is, uh, it's a sonic, for me, it's a sonic manifestation of the human soul. I can't, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I can't uh, sort of <laughs> not pay homage to it. Uh, and, and, uh, I think, um, apart from all the development of the technology that I did to, you know, make it a reality and, and, and make it happen, the sound of the heartbeat, uh, is just so intense. And that, in fact, one of the most uh, significant moments in the performance is after 16, 18 minutes of the performance, the dancer, as I said in the review, she turns the machine off. And, you know, I've probably performed it 50 times now over mm -hmm. the last 20, 30 years. And there's... There's a split second, always, uh, when she turns it off, that something has disappeared, something has flown away, something has stopped. Did her heart stop? Uh, uh, you know, it teaches me. Every time I, I, I love to perform it, because every time I perform it, I learn something new. Uh, and it also brings me, you know, like meditation, it brings me to a place that is so rooted in the human spirit uh, that I really, I, I really have never been able to get any other way. Yeah, and you said meditation, and I was just thinking that dance, drums, blood coming together, it's very meditative. It yeah. is pure meditation and healing. Yeah. Well, and also the nice thing is for me to be able to give it to, to let other people hear it. I mean, I think that was the whole idea was, was okay, we all have a drum inside our body. Mm. You know, I was trained as a drummer. That, that's how I, I think about rhythm. That's my principal uh, instrument in that sense. And yeah. so when I was developing this concept in 1982, um, you know, I, I had studied Eurythmics at the Dow Crow School of Music in New York, which is, you know, where the Eurythmics is the teaching of rhythm through movement. You learn to walk in two, clap your hands in three, sing in four. I mean, you become this polyrhythmic machine because the body has its own memory and the yeah. body has its own way of understanding rhythm independent of the mind. So, uh, you know, that was a very profound uh, part of my education and so when I was developing the idea of heartbeat it was was okay is there a way I can bring this drum so that everybody can hear it and it can be part of a performance but I have to say the the first day that I sort of got the technology built and turned it on it was way it was <laughs> it was way more than that it transcended any kind of uh, any, any kind of intellectual reasoning. 
it, it was it was very powerful and uh and from there on it really taught me and like i say you know that was the early 80s and so you know now we're 40 years later and i still love doing it because every time i do it i learn something new yeah yeah i do too from every every time i i kind of uh read about the project and every time i review it i learn something new from it every time yeah well um, i'm hoping, i'm hoping that we're going to do it in uh new york here in the next year uh, i can't really say too much more about it except that obviously uh the current crisis has put a lot of things on ice but yeah. I think uh, sooner or later, or sooner, within a year, we're going to do a performance in uh, in New York with some very good performers. So I, I I hope you'll come to that. Yeah, and it's the epicenter of New York, and it's so relevant again. I mean, New Yorkers will appreciate it even more. I know. I, I think I'm pretty sure. You know, when it comes along, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go to the next question. Sure. And uh, it's about your light sound projects, Sonic Pass Blue, Sonic Rings, Sonic Fireflies. The titles are so beautiful. The list is endless, and you create synesthetic environments that require sound, light, landscape, and pedestrian interaction. And as Francis Bacon says, what great motions there are in nature which pass without sound and noise. Once again, in the context of what's happening with the COVID-19, in what ways do you think we can experience the same enchantment and peacefulness that one would experience perhaps as they interacted with fireflies, with your fireflies? Mm -hmm. What are some alternatives that art can provide to even those who haven't experienced your artworks by being around them? What role do you think imagination can play? Yeah. Right. Well, I think it's, I, I think we're all, we all know the importance of being in isolation now. Yeah. But I think it's, I think it's also <laughs> making us all quite aware of what we miss by not having uh, social interaction. Exactly. And I, I think that, uh, it's a very, I think it's a difficult time and I think it needs to go on, you know, for, for longer. And, uh, <laughs> but, but I think at the same time we're, we're, it's taken a toll on our psyche and certainly uh, our, uh, it's, I think it's making us realize how important social interaction is to experiencing life. And uh, so I, I really can't say as long as we have to remain isolated uh, and what we can do. You know, I, I, my wife and I participate every Friday night in the, uh, the, the it's called the Dis Dance mm -hmm. uh, by a group called the Dance Cartel out of New York. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a giant, you know, dance party on zoom oh and, wow yeah no i it's i recommend it to anybody if you you just google uh the dance cartel mm -hmm. uh, and uh there's on their website there's something about called the disc dance 
and this um, dance. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a, I think they do it two or three times a week. I mean, I think there's a Friday night and a Sunday afternoon and a Wednesday night, but Friday night is always a good time. We sort of like exhale from the week. Yeah, and uh, I now have, I now have you know my computer in my music studio with my big sound system all set up and my wife my wife and <laughs> I go down there and dance for an hour and 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 actually Sonny Hit who's a member of the dance cartel she danced heartbeat uh for me about two or three times in the in the mid 2000s so I mm. actually uh she uh she's the one that sent me the note about, you know, that the dance cartel, her group was going to do this. And so I was very excited and it's fun. It's good, but it's not uh, the same amount of social interaction as dancing in a club. And, and and I sort of admit, obviously we, we, those of us who do that on a regular basis, we, we miss that. And, uh, uh, but for now, this is what it has to be. Yeah, so I I think like if I were to do this, like I would just play uh, Fireflies, you know your video, oh, and sure. and just hear the the just just imagine you know that I can hear the soundtracks of the mermaids and the whales and the tabla and the oboes, you know, and and get a part of you know just by imagining, not even being around the installation. But the patterns of light and sound could stimulate the imagination <laughs> automatically, even if you are a writer. And um, oh, I like that. I think I think that you know, uh, if, if you uh, if you just when you're walking, um, you just sing to the sound of your footsteps. Mm-hmm. I mean, just find a way to make yourself more aware of the rhythms that are around you um, and not just by listening, but also by somehow uh, participating. So let's just say, let's, you know, when, when a person walks, when you walk, just let that be a beat and just sing, even if it's just a little rhythmic in, uh, improvisation, you know, just just oh that was lovely you know, it helps to ground you in your own rhythm of your footstep and then also sort of in a little bit of a feedback loop with that so i think together ivana we've we've made a little piece here yeah that was amazing that sounded so good it has to be put in a loop well, I think we're not. I think we should just try to get as many people to do it. Yeah. Uh, uh, as long as we have to be in isolation, then you know we'll just uh, together with ourselves or uh, our family, if they're around us, uh, participate that way. Yeah, maybe start a fireflies project. You know, yeah. on Zoom. Yeah. A fireflies project. Yeah, that would be wonderful. <laughs> nice. Okay, before we get late, I'm going to go to the next question. Um, and, but I cannot talk, uh, about, you know, there's so many projects, but I cannot not talk about sound is an invisible color. I'm so much, you know, of this multimedia work, which is for me a forever transformative experience and performance. And, uh, please tell us how this one came into being. Well, I think, uh, 
if for those who are interested, you would want to go to my website, jannysound.com, and you would want to uh, see what I call sound is an invisible color. But let me explain a little bit of the history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, doing work as an architect, uh, uh, I don't, I, you know, I, I design something for a building somewhere in the world or, and then I leave that place. Mm-hmm. So I come mm-hmm. back to my studio. So in the end, you know, I have my models and, and uh, sketch projects and things here in the studio. Um, but what I really wanted to do, and this would have been around 10 years ago, I wanted to create a series of uh, sculptures, a series mm-hmm. of, um, wall reliefs mm-hmm. that somehow uh, 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 manifested what my thought my work was about, the interaction, the, 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 inter, uh, the intersection between the physical world and the ephemeral world of music. So mm-hmm. uh, I set about to make um, a series of pieces uh, and uh, that have a visual component and a sonic component. And mm-hmm. you'll see if you go to jannysound.com, uh, uh, Sound is an Invisible Color is, was actually the title of the solo exhibition that I had this past six months at the Louisiana Arts and Science Museum. And mm-hmm. it was uh, an exhibition of many of those uh, artworks that I created. and. And so the idea, though, the title really came from Marcel Duchamp, uh, really the father of conceptual art, when he said um, a title is an invisible color. And he Uh. was very right in that, you know, uh, the title will, will help, a good title will help put your mind in a place uh, where, what where the artist was creating the work or the genesis of the work. So in his case, a title is an invisible color, how it shades then your perception of the artwork. And in my case, uh, the sound and what I do in terms of having the sound component in the artwork also hopefully transform your perception about what you're looking at. Ah, okay. So uh, when I went to the website, you know, um, this website, which is the LSU uh, design art website, as, as I was talking to you, I was on that website. Uh-huh. And um, I was seeing that uh, it was supposed to happen, uh, something uh, related to this was supposed to happen in Boston with other musicians, uh, with vocalists and trumpeters. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did a concert in 2016. 2020 now, 2018, sorry, at Boston University, which was called Exploring the Hidden Music. I did it in... Is that the one I went to? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the one I went to. Exactly. Oh, yes. 2014, I did it in uh, Boston in 2018, and that's the uh, concert that I gave in just the end of January in Baton Rouge. And... uh, uh, you know, so that exploring the hidden music uh, is the title of the concert that is 
the musical side of this exhibition that was called Sound is an Invisible Color. I, I was there at the concert and I am so stupid. I forgot that the vocalist right. was also so good. And That's the right. interactivity in the whole, uh, whole concert was so beautiful. You know, people coming from here in between unexpected. Uh, we becoming part of the, of the whole concept and the whole art, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it was amazing. It was sure. amazing. Sure. Um, so my next question is, I read an article about you by Heidi Legg on urban alienation. It's just, again, <laughs> urban alienation. And she says that you told her, mm -hmm. if you put a colony of bees into a shared space with another colony of bees, they literally fight until death. However, if you put them in the same space, but separate them with a newspaper where they can hear, but not see one another, their curiosity takes over and slowly they cut through the paper to weave together into one functioning group. This is so beautiful, just the description itself and very prophetic when I reflect again in today's context. You know, it gives me, I, I, I read about it, but now when I read about it now, sure. it's, it takes a different shape and meaning. So tell us about this, about the bees. Well, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. No, I think, I think um, uh, it's what I, a lot of my work, my urban musical instruments, I, I, I say that, uh, I, I refer to them as a social foil. And what that means is, is that uh, these interact, large interactive public artworks are, uh, are a way for people total strangers to interact with one another, but in a positive and creative way. Uh, so, you know, in a sense, my, I think of my urban musical instruments as the piece of newspaper, especially, <laughs> especially in a public space. I think that um, people, what can I how can I say this? That people don't always, uh, People need to have a game by which, with rules, by which they uh, can interact with one another in creative and positive ways. And so very much I think of my urban musical instruments as those kinds of things. Um, that if you give people a way to interact with one another that is creative and communal and making music together, uh, there tends to be a, a greater sense of harmony. You know, you don't ever have to say a word to the, to, to the other person or the other people. You're just playing and interacting with one another, making this musical environment. And uh, especially, you know, I do a lot of work in children's hospitals mm. and also in, uh, you know, large transportation uh, you know, airports and, and uh, large spaces like this and places that, you know, have a fair amount of tension, social mm -hmm. tension. You know, people mm -hmm. are late, the plane is late, the people are late, they're running around, they're, all of a sudden they have to wait four hours, they don't have anything to do. Um, or certainly in hospitals where it's, uh, you know, especially children's hospitals, it's a, a very high anxiety kind of environment. And I, I like to put my work 
in those kinds of places because I think it acts as a foil to allow people to relax and allow people to sort of get in touch with their humanity mm. and, and, and their natural sense of wanting to socialize in a positive way with other people. And I think you see this in many children. I think somehow we lose it as we grow up. Mm. But one reason, again, like I like to see my work in children's hospitals is also how the children teach the adults how to behave. And, uh, you know, it was Picasso who said it takes a long time to become young again. Now, he may have been referring to just creativity and how you get in touch with your creative spirit. But I also think there's an element in there of, uh, of getting back to your sense of wonder and also your sense of sharing and uh, sharing uh, humor and laughter with one another. Yeah, this whatever you said right now, sharing humor, laughter, um, it's, it's like, um, and, and the musical elements and everything sounds on a, on a minor scale, like a craft project, a school craft project. Uh -huh. And, and it sounds on a larger scale, like something that all of us have the time now to delve into and think about. And even if you are alienated, you know, if you think more and meditate on this more, I think the fear element will die. And, uh, you know, we can, you know, maybe strengthen our immune when, when we are less scared of what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, there's certainly a lot of fear because there's a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty. And uh, I think, I mean, I think you're right in the sense that, okay, you know, this, this is clearly a time where we almost have to pull back. And so let's try to use it as a time of reflection and, and uh, a time to sort of maybe get more grounded in our humanity. Mm. Uh, so that you know when we go out again we're up, we that part of us part of us is refreshed and uh because i think uh i think what we've talked about in our earlier discussion about technology and urban alienation these things that sort of naturally uh pull us away from our humanity i think that we need to find ways to to get back to that and we often don't take enough time but i think now we have some time but we have to have the incentive. Yes, and um, we've talked about yoga, your sounds, your 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 whole you know the the synesthetic part of you. Every 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 pore of you is into your works. Mm -hmm. And finally, I have to ask you, since I'm from the East myself, you seem to have a deep rooted connection with Eastern spiritualities and music. You've used the tabla so many times. Mm -hmm. And with the God of Destruction, Shiva, who's one of my favorite gods. Mm -hmm. um, one of your very early projects, Burning Drum. Mm -hmm. uh, it was such an early project. I read it in your book, Architecture of the Air. You know, that's a beautiful book. It gives all the information that you need. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was based on this thought or realization. Um, this is, um, I'm going to quote from a Tamil poetess of the 20, uh, 14th century, Arputa Tiruvan. That the, I hope I'm pronouncing her right, uh, mm -hmm. set of Shiva with his dreaded locks and his dance, the Nataraja dance. Mm -hmm. She said, this is my greatest desire without fail. One day you'll show yourself to us, 
my father with locks twisted like the flames of a lighted fire the place where you dance in full night over the high flame i'm sure she means shiva by the father mm -hmm. um though this is one of your very early projects burning drum i mm -hmm. again find it very relevant in today's context with the, the countless rhythms and pulses of creation are telling us specifically to pay heed to the burning drum of shiva as it were as he sh shakes his outlaws shaped drum and performs and ignites vibrations that are created in the universe through his dance um it's it's uh, it's very I'm, I'm getting goosebumps as i talk about that um because shiva is also known to be the god of destruction and then uh, bringing about new new times through his destruction mm -hmm. um tell us uh, how the burning drum project came to being and what mm -hmm. is your empathetic connection, if I may say so, with Eastern spirituality? Sure. Um, well, uh, this last month, I turned 70 years old. Oh, really? Oh, God. Uh, I don't think you look that, that old at all. And uh, I started meditation when I was 20. So now it's been 50 years. Yeah. And, and I have to say that, you know, that has been one of the most profound, uh, profound experiences uh, of my life. Um, I think that the, I, I think the, I think it's important to do some sort of meditation every day. And uh, I think that, uh, that that sort of reflection, even if it's only 20, 30 minutes, twice a day, once a day, uh, can help you find your path, you know, mm -hmm. to help you understand what it is you sincerely have passion for and what you want to do with your life. Um, the piece Burning Drum was... I created that uh, around 1980. Um, you know, as I said earlier, I was trained as a drummer and a percussionist. And uh, I was reading at that time Joseph Campbell's book. I uh, um, can't remember the title. But that's where I read in great detail about Shiva. And Shiva has the burning drum. Uh, has, has the drum of time in one hand and the burning flame in the other. And uh, so, you know, as a drummer and just sort of thinking be outside the world of physical drumming, um, it really was to me the idea of just rhythm. Everything in our conscious world has rhythm. Mm. We know this down to the molecular level and we know this even at the cosmic level. Anything that has movement has rhythm. And of course, anything that has rhythm has sound because it has vibration. So, so I started to think a lot about all the rhythms that are in the world, some that we can hear, some that we can't, some, of the, some that we can see, some that we can't. Um, but what I then understood Shiva to be was that uh, 
when you transcend into nirvana, when you transcend into a consciousness that takes you outside this world, you transcend into a world that doesn't have rhythm and doesn't mm-hmm. have time. And that's cosmic consciousness. And, and so I've always been very interested in that concept. So I really, <laughs> Burning Drum is, a, is literally an old snare drum of mine that I, that I burned and, uh, you know, and then built almost a, like a tomb for it out of dark blue velvet. And uh, so it really was on a lot of levels thinking about Shiva and the, the God of dance and destruction and transformation, really what that's about. That, you know, perhaps I wasn't going to play the physical drum anymore, but I was going to transform those concepts into something else, into something, uh, for me, something larger, something bigger, reflecting on the, the rhythms of the world and the rhythms of everything around me, the, rhythm, the rhythms of all the physical materials. So there was a lot of that kind of thought that went into the burning drum piece. And, and if you have seen a picture of it, you have the burning drum there, and then you have a metal cutout of, of Shiva. Uh, and then you have the quotes about on the above and below about the drum of time in one hand and the flame in the other. And, and I actually, when I, uh, in the early 90s, when I, I taught at Cooper Union uh, in the School of Architecture um, all through the 90s, I would bring that, that sculpture with me on the first day and present it to the class and try to say, okay, this is very much about what my instrument is about now. It is about, this is what to me rhythm is about now. And uh, I have it here on my studio wall, and I see it every day, and it helps to ground me and remind me of both the world of, of cosmic consciousness and the world of no rhythm, and then also the world of just rhythms being all around me all the time. Yeah, and I, I know it's sad that it's just an audio podcast. It's not a visual one. I'm sure we will have one and you will have the time to come as a guest. Um, no. I can see the uh, burning drum on the right of you and the left of me. And, uh, and I don't, right. yeah, I there, see that. I there, see. There. <laughs> yeah. And it's strange that you mention burning and blue. You know, you burnt it and then you had that blue velvet. Yeah. Because a shiva uh, was, used to burn ash and wear it on, his, on the center of his forehead. Uh-huh. And his throat was blue. You know, that's what the mythology goes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, because of drinking the poison of the world. So, so you didn't think of it, but it happened again, you know, sure. uh, <laughs> by destiny. Sure. Well, you know, I think that uh, by intuition, yes. I mean, I think the world of the artist particularly is not always in the world of reason. A lot of times, you know, you, you might make something and then it might be as much as a year later, you look at it and you then realize why you made it. I, I think it's important to, to do things that transcend your conscious mind and, can, and transcend your sense of reason. Uh, 
um, especially if you want to be involved in the arts. You have to massage your intuitive muscle and you have to do things that just, you have to do things that just feel good, that you sense are good and right. And maybe you don't get the answer as to why you did it for weeks, days, months, years later. I think that's part of the life of, of uh, being an, uh, an artist. Yeah, yeah. And anything else you would like to share before we conclude? Oh, I, think, I think we've said quite enough. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I can continue. For, for a couple of weeks. But I yeah. would love it if you, tra if you, I don't know what you'll do with it, but if you do, however you publish it, please send me a copy. I'd love to listen to it. If you, if you transcribe it, I'd love to read it. Uh, yes. You know, I, I think that uh, this you know, helps to teach me. And uh, that's your humility. The sign, of, the sign of a good teacher is that a teacher, they, they know when the, when, when they know when they're also learning from whatever it is they're doing. So that's I really fun. appreciate having this conversation. Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm hoping uh, whenever you're not tired of me, that we're going to uh, have a video conference and uh, actually have a, a beautiful video conference. Maybe have dance in it, you know. And I'm going to look into all the books and I, I learned so, so, so much. And I, I'm just overwhelmed. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you okay. so much for coming. Talk Thank you. Again. Stay safe now. You too. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.